Welcome to podcast episode nine, Life in the Front Office here, Jay Kirschman with Fred Clare and Rick White. Uh, really fortunate to have our two guests on today. Uh, Fred and Rick go way back and Rick actually has an association with all three hosts of Life in the Front Office podcast. So we'd love to, to introduce uh, Fred and, and have Fred introduce Rick. Awesome. Well, Rick, we're, you know, we're obviously excited to have you on. Wanted to kind of dive into, you know, your career path. It it has had uh, some twists and turns and and full of many, many experiences, which obviously we'll we'll get to in a second. But um, let's kind of start off with, you know, your your current position in the president of the Atlantic League. Um, Some people may or may not be as familiar with it as it is indie ball and you know, it's not the Yankees or the Red Sox, but kind of dive into what your current role is there and um, what you're up to today. Thanks, Jake. Uh, as president of the Atlantic League, I run an eight-team independent professional baseball minor league. Seven of the teams are on the mid-Atlantic coast of the United States. One of our clubs is just outside of Houston in Sugarland, Texas. We do, as, as you suggest, uh, operate below the radar. And for most fans, particularly listeners of this podcast, I don't think they'd be familiar with our league. But I can assure you that each of the 30 major league clubs is very familiar with our league. On any given year, we will transfer the contracts of between 40 and 80 of our players to major league baseball organizations. During the season, we transfer those players' contracts at a price to Major League Baseball, which was founded specifically to provide ex-major leaguers and those high-talented players who had never made the big leagues an opportunity for a second chance to get to the show. And over the course of our 21 years, I'm proud to say that Over 170 of our alumni have gone on to Major League Baseball, whether they were rejoining uh, the big leagues or getting there for the first time. And during those 21 years, we've also had over 900 players sign contracts with big league organizations. So we're quite proud of that. We seem to be moving in the right direction in terms of honoring our founding fathers and uh, that's what I do, and my specific role has to do with uh, scheduling disciplinary matters, adjudication of games, all of the administrative detail that goes into running a professional league of any kind, whether it's affiliated at the big league level or independent. 
No, that's awesome. And obviously what you guys have built is, is, uh, superb in that, you know, you guys are spread amongst, uh, parts of the country and, you know, there's plenty of opportunities for guys to continue their careers. Uh, I'm sure Fred's, you know, in his time with the Dodgers has, uh, come across a couple of those guys. I know when I worked in minor league baseball, we had signed a guy from Indie ball and he hit 40 home runs that year. So it's, it's not, um, like those guys, you know, aren't made to play in, in the big league organization. Sometimes they just, uh, need a chance. Right. And so, uh, talking with Fred about kind of the baseball landscape and the evolution of today's industry, you know, Fred, dive a little bit into um, what Rick has kind of done and, you know, what that looks like in terms of the, the overall scope of the industry. Well, the independent leagues, and uh, specifically in this case, the, the Atlantic League is uh, extremely valuable uh, resource for Major League Baseball. But I think even beyond that, the uh, the entertainment value that's provided by the quality of play in the Atlantic League and in other independent leagues is tremendous. It's really tremendous for the growth of the game because the uh, the independent leagues are able to offer the games at certainly pricing much reduced from what you would find in a major league stadium. That's understandable, but I think as far as the uh, the popularity of the game grows through independent league baseball. But as Rick mentioned, I mean, it's absolutely uh, incredible statistics and, and just shows that the opportunities that can exist for players with a love for the game striving to get to the major leagues and seeing that happen. And I think the other thing that's of interest here in, in view of uh, our podcast, Life in the Front Office, and what I do want uh, Rick to speak to a little bit also, is just as players have opportunities, when you look at it, of course, uh, people employed in baseball have opportunities. Young people in the front office and all of the other areas of the operation of a uh, of an independent league. So I think that's uh, something that probably hasn't been brought to the forefront very, very much. But I think, um, Rick, you certainly can uh, talk about what you've seen and experienced as far as young people wanting to get involved in the game, not as players, but for the love of the game and wanting to be involved, and uh, what opportunities uh, have existed and been presented to them. You know, Fred, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because for every player on the field, there are usually multiple folks behind the scenes putting the game on and preparing that surface so that that player has a chance to perform. And we we produce an event day in and day out that most people would find identical to an affiliated minor league game. They're fun. They're full of promotions. Our fans sit in stadiums designed to our specification, and we know that they're going to be close to the players, close to the action, and they're going to see a game close up with keen talent. Behind those scenes, though, we have a couple of things that are really interesting. Number one, over 80 of our off-the-field personnel have gone on to take jobs in Major League Baseball organizations. Uh, again, I'm diverting a little bit here, digressing just a touch when I talk about our managers and coaches, but over 50 of our managers and coaches have also gone into big league organizations. 
For those folks in the front office, however, there's one key distinction that separates them from their brethren in affiliated minor leagues. As most of your listeners will know, Major League Baseball subsidizes the operations of affiliated minor league baseball. In independent league baseball, our administrators are working with a fully baked profit and loss statement. They have to manage cash flow and therefore are quite familiar with their team balance sheets and so forth. And so we're really uh, training and creating personnel who are fully equipped to segue into those organizations that value income statement management, and we're really quite proud of that. Um, it, it gives us a chance to develop a more fully formed manager than if he or she were to get into baseball at a different level or in a different context. I should also add that being minor league baseball and having the fun associated with the game in that local community level, we've been able as a league to do some things that truly could not have been done at the major league baseball level and perhaps not even at the affiliated minor league level in terms of leading the way on pace of play initiatives, looking at a fun way to be distinctive with a red, white, and blue baseball that we use day in and day out as our official baseball, where we can bring initiative and innovation not only to the game presentation locally, but on a league-wide basis to, we hope, be mimicked throughout the game of professional baseball. Well, and Rick, you talk about kind of uh, the Indie Ball League and almost a sense of a farm system for the minor leagues and for the major leagues. Um, you know, what is one thing that you, as you guys have kind of built out uh, some of the teams in, in the various areas and you talk about a community perspective, what are some of the things from a community perspective that um, really stand out and that maybe people who do work in your space could take to the next level and, and implement there? Well, first and foremost, Jake, there are a number of B and C sized communities that desire professional baseball and the recreational benefits associated with professional baseball, who without independent professional ball would not have the opportunity to attract the team. Uh, most recently, we have geared up in the community of High Point, North Carolina to deliver Atlantic League Baseball commencing next April in 2019. Wow. Not only are we proud of the fact that we can deliver to them the affinity of minor league baseball, but we've done two things that I think are truly unique. Number one, this will be the first playing surface in our league where the ballpark has artificial surface as opposed to a natural grass surface. And for some old timers, that might seem to defy their idea of what a purist should be looking for in professional baseball. But this is a community asset, and we will be hosting games not just for High Point University, but also for local colleges <clears throat> or and, and local high schools who will also have a chance to play on that field, whether it be baseball, softball, field sports, or the like. Uh, 
other thing that we are incredibly proud of is, to our knowledge, this will be the first professional sports franchise that is solely owned by a charitable foundation. The ownership of the High Point Rockers will be a 501c4, and all of their net dividends will be distributed to deserving area charities that reflect the makeup of the greater High Point community. And again, the fact that you can say that you're not only providing recreational benefit, that you're spreading that benefit to participants in different sports at different age groups, but at the end of the day, any of the proceeds from that are going to go back to benefit charity is something that the league is immensely proud of. Yeah, kudos to you, Rick. That's amazing. I mean, I think you know, obviously some of the big league teams have foundations and obviously they do, you know, work in the community, but, but that's a direct impact right there. And, and um, that's something really unique and exciting. Uh, not to divert, but kind of wanted to, to revisit one thing about, you know, working in the Atlantic League, working in indie ball. And for those, um, you know, undergrad students who are in sports management or someone who wants to get into sports, how it can be a start for them, you know, We'll we'll go back to kind of where you got started and how you got to where you are. But you know, what is something that they can do in order to get started in the Atlantic League, um, and what kind of experience it can teach uh, someone trying to get into sports and and allow them to uh, learn and and pursue other opportunities uh, in the future. Jake, I'm glad you brought that up because it's all about bringing young qualified individuals into the sport and handing over the reins to them over time. The simplest thing that any interested young person or someone looking to make a career change can do if they're interested in our league, or others, by the way, is to go to any of our team's websites or to go to the Atlantic League website where they can actually register and post their resume and have it move into a job bank that services both our league and most other minor leagues, affiliated or independent. That's the simple part, and it's something I would encourage every young person to do. The second thing that is a little bit more direct, and, I'm still, and I still believe to be more effective, is to use the good old-fashioned United States Postal Service <laughs> and to send along their credentials to the presidents or general managers of our clubs. They're all listed on each club's website as are their respective postal addresses. And in my experience, both as a young person looking for a job and now as somebody who works in a space that many covet, I think that the personal touch associated with direct contact is always going to have a higher impact than one where someone is merely looking at a digital representation of credentials. It allows a person to express their feelings more, more holistically, and it allows them, in a world where most mail now is bills or solicitations, to stand out from the crowd. So I, I would recommend that as well. Well, and Fred. A, uh, an excellent suggestion, for sure. Uh, I think that that personal touch, and when you take the Atlantic League or any independent league, uh, smaller offices, more accessible than if you're trying to knock on the door at Dodger Stadium. 
And uh, I have had any number, of course, of young people reach out to me. How do I get in the game? How, how do I work for the Dodgers? How do I work for the Angels? And I often say, don't necessarily set your sights there. You have to, what I refer to is you have to get into the stream. You have to get into the game so that you're, you're known. Because baseball, as we know, is a very small world when it comes to uh, establishing your identity and that identity being known. And I think, Rick, that uh, quite often a young person uh, who would call a independent lake club and say, you know, I, I realize you may not have a position, but do you, Mr. General Manager, whatever the position may be, have just 10 or 15 minutes to spend with me because I've, I've got a, a love for the game and I want to be involved in the game. And, Rick, you've seen this happen. We've all seen this happen. We've experienced sometimes that, that direct contact can and really does make the most important impact in your search for a position in the game. No question about it, Fred. You couldn't, you couldn't be more correct. And, you know, careers in our sport are just like careers in any industry, right? You have to start at a certain level, prove your mettle, uh, add something to the team, and with a little luck and perseverance, you're going to take that next step and the step after that and the step after that. And um, again, along the way, I've, I've noticed that people sometimes weed themselves out, and there are naturally occurring openings inside the game that present themselves to people as they progress through a career in, in professional baseball much like in any other industry. Well, and, and Rick, you know, and Fred will touch on this in a minute, but, you know, you had experience that you went from baseball, you went to other sports, you went to brands, you went to headwear, to footwear, to licensing, back to baseball. You know, Fred had had the opportunity to go from, you know, PR and journalism uh, at a newspaper and in a, in a community to the Dodgers and so on. Um, but talk a little bit about, you know, the different experiences that you've had along the way that have really shaped either skill sets that, that young people can try and seek out to build. Um, and then we'll kick it to Fred to, to touch on his point as well uh, in the same respective area. Well, ironically enough, Jake, I, I knew of Fred Clare before he joined the Dodger organization. As a young person growing up in Southern California, I was familiar with Fred's byline when he was a, a journalist. And I watched with interest when he was able to segue from, from journalism into a role with the Dodgers, which certainly was related. And it showed the respect that the organization had for his, uh, his professional accomplishments. But he really didn't start working in baseball. He started as a journalist, as you suggest. In my case, I think that uh, unless one is looking at a certifiable degree with a clear career path, whether that be law or medicine or other disciplines, I, I believe that we are all well served by exposure to a number of different disciplines. Now, um, I guess when you recount all the stops I've made along the way, it's pretty clear I can't hold a job. But <laughs> you, you and you and Andy Dolich, apparently. <laughs> um, getting past that, uh, the positions that I accepted as I moved in and out and then back into baseball, 
all had some sort of uh, methodology supporting them. Now, one can call that madness, one could call it strategic, but when uh, I moved to Nike in my career, it's because I wanted to become more familiar with institutional public governance, and I wanted discipline to something that was sports-related, but not necessarily a single sport. When I moved to the trade show, conference, and event business, it was because I was infatuated with the intersection of digital technologies and three-dimensional technologies in a, frankly, medium that is one of the oldest marketing mediums in the world because, as you all know, marketplaces began in feudal times in Europe, but they continue to this day. We just happen to call them trade shows. And I was able to take the best parts of what I had learned and, I hope, mix them with a bit of alchemy that I'm known for, which happens to be brand and innovation, and deliver those into each one of those stops. And that has to do with the reason I'm at the Atlantic League now. But I've been very, very fortunate to learn along the way, take those lessons learned, and apply them into each successive step. And I believe that as a manager, I am better rounded than had I continued in one place my entire career. And I should add that, you know, my first real job wasn't in baseball. It happened to be in product management for what was then called the Carnation Company. And, you know, if you can make it work in instant milk, you can make it work. <laughs> Again, I, I take some of those lessons with me. Fred? Anything to add there? It's of interest in that Rick's many moves reflect the learning curve and the various aspects that he learned along the way to build his experience, to build his resume. I think where I was extremely fortunate, and in some ways, even though staying with the Dodgers for 30 years, kind of had a path similar to Rick's in this way. Uh, in 30 years with the Dodgers, my positioning was always evolving. Uh, I went from publicity uh, to uh, publicity director to vice president, public relations and marketing. So those were that that was a, a growth pattern and a learning pattern. And then ultimately to executive vice president, where I was overseeing the entire front office of the Dodger organization, and then, of course, to executive vice president and general manager, was where I was deeply involved uh, and totally involved uh, in baseball operations. And that that was that happened really because of, of uh, one primary reason as far as the structure of the organization. We were an extremely small, the Dodgers, we, were an extremely small organization during the time that I was there. So that uh, when I joined the Dodgers and the, as publicity director, there were really three people, Red Patterson, the secretary, Janet Calderwood, and myself, that were involved in all of the publicity, all the public relations, all of the marketing, all of the fan mail, all of the statistics. And I, I consider that to be a tremendous benefit and I, the reason I bring that point up, it gets back to the independent league and, and smaller operations. 
where it's a tremendous advantage when you can have a position where you are experiencing different parts of the business and you're growing in your knowledge uh, each and every period of time. Because I, I think one of the, uh, the dangerous as far as growth or disadvantages is that if, it, if you're doing the same thing, if you're doing the very same thing uh, year after year, month after month, year after year, uh, then uh, in, in many ways uh, that, that can, in, can inhibit your overall growth in terms of your uh, professional ability. So uh, Rick's uh, movements, he gained that he notes in each of those, and I had, uh, and I was very fortunate uh, to be able to uh, have so many different types of experiences and so many different types of areas within the organization of one team. And, and Jake, if I can hitchhike on that for a second, I couldn't agree more with Fred just in terms of the parallels there, and I know this affected Andy and Pat as well. Um, for young people, I, th I think as they're looking forward to their career, they, they, they should realize there's an arc, but it, the arc can continue forward, but it moves along something like this. In, in all of our first jobs, we are, we are uh, given tasks to perform. Usually, it is rare, but usually in any one of those tasks, there is room for initiative, although most people don't recognize it. As we move forward, we begin to generally execute against a budget, and as we mature on the job, we are asked to contribute to a budget. And as we move forward in our careers and we take on more responsibility, we start to get a section of a budget, and ultimately, when you're sitting at the top of an organization, you are not just assembling, but you are administering the budget through each of its component parts and its management representatives. And, and so you start to go through this arc. It doesn't end there, however, because cash management, cash resource, profit management, strategic analysis of income statements are all things you learn along the way. Yes, in certain schools and in certain disciplines, you get a taste of that. But until you have kind of moved in your career, whether internally or from place to place, you don't kind of get to those moves early on. And, and I think as I look at Fred and my career good fortune, one of the real parallels that we both have is, is this exposure to increasing amounts of responsibility that really dictate how you manage, not only personally, but certainly how you manage those who work around you and those who report to you. Well, and Rick, you bring, a, bring up a great point. I mean, thank you for sharing that. And, you know, without knowing that and without going through that, you wouldn't have known that. And someone who's young and starting out wouldn't also know that. And one of the things that I would potentially suggest is informational interviewing to find those sort of things out, right? Talk to the right people, talk to the people that are in a position like yours that have gone through those stages who completely understand and might be able to provide those insights. Um, in talking about informational interviews, and we'll kind of switch to this, you know, 
Fred, Rick, what kind of comments do you have in terms of um, advice, in terms of informational interviews? What are the right questions to ask? What should people that are young in their careers try to learn and figure out to maybe get ahead of the curve, to, to have that forward-thinking growth mindset um, that, that you're alluding to? Well, Jake, I, I think in in any interview that you have, one of the basic uh, necessities, if you would, is to be prepared. Never go in to a situation where you're seeking information, where you're seeking guidance. Two parts of that. Be totally prepared in terms of, and writing it down, be totally prepared of the questions that you want to ask, the information that you're seeking. The other part that's just as important, know the person who is going to be interviewing you. What, what, how did he get to be in his position from what you've been able to together? But I think it's, um, uh, it, it's, it needs to be a, uh, a very uh, sincere approach because I think what happens and I've seen this with young people that I've interviewed. The thing that always strikes me through the years, the people that I've come into contact, that I've seen to go on to success, is the passion that they possess. And I think that has to be reflected. I think that's a keynote of why you are there. Uh, what, what, what is your feeling? What, what is it that you generate that you exhibit that shows that you really want to be involved. And part of that, too, has to be in your approach. Because I tell students uh, and young people that if they're in a position that, they're, that, that the approach should be, look, I'll take any job doing anything because this is where I want to be. So I'll do whatever it takes. And I'm not concerned about the hours, and I'm not concerned where you can make this uh, a judgment uh, or be able to do so. I'm not concerned about the compensation. I'm looking for an opportunity. And when you take that approach, and that comes through, I, I think that resonates. I couldn't agree more with Fred. Uh, it, number one, preparing for an interview is so elementary anymore. Um, Fred and I tend to skew on the mature side of listeners to this podcast. And, <laughs> you know, when we were coming out of college, we did not have the resources available to young people today to look up individuals, to look up institutions, and to realize how people combined resources into their career. So preparation is key. Second, Fred couldn't be more correct about passion, and, and, and I'll just leave it at that. The, the, the third thing, though, I'll add a three and a four to this, and again, one is related and one is perhaps slightly different. Around the passion side, it is so straightforward to pe for people to show their initiative, regardless of age and regardless of context, that I'm startled sometimes that they don't do it. Not all of us can be a good baseball player. At some point, no matter how good you are, you're hanging them up because you aren't good enough anymore. So whether it was in middle school or high school or community college or college or even professionally along the way, sooner or later, you're just not good enough anymore. 
but you're always good enough to take on that initiative role that you initiate yourself where you say, I want to be the team manager, or I want to work with the training department, or I want to work with coaches, or I want to work on logistics, or I want to work with the Little League, or I want to umpire, or I want to do something that helps me reinforce my love of the game. And people sometimes don't realize that they're building a resume when they're doing those things, whether it be in middle school, high school, or college. The fourth thing I'll add to that list beyond um, research and preparation, beyond passion, beyond initiative, is results. I had a reminder this weekend vis-a-vis my 20-year-old daughter, who's a junior in college, that even with folks looking at resume first-timers, they not only want to see initiative, but they want to see what results you were able to generate in your avocational or extracurricular activities. And that doesn't mean you had to be the best umpire on the field, but it means that you have to be able to claim that you made a difference in the lives of young people when you went out and took the initiative to become an umpire. Or that if you're involved in a charity, or if you're involved serving as an intern, that you're able to claim your efforts either helped a team produce or led to a result that was favorable to the team that you're a part of. And I think sometimes people want to list activities as accomplishments, and no doubt those extracurricular activities are important. But as an interviewer, I want to make sure that people are connecting the dots and they weren't performing activities just because they thought that would help them but they were combining that, their passion, and making a difference through results. And I believe if people can do that, they present a better opportunity for themselves than if they merely say, I worked here, there, and everywhere. Nobody really cares about that other than the fact that you did it. People really care about if you made a difference or not. Well, and how can, to go into that point, how can someone... Um, firmly express the ability to make a difference, right? The ability to make an impact. Uh, let's say if they're an intern and, you know, they have those responsibilities, like Fred was saying, where you just take that opportunity. How can someone, when they do get that opportunity, whether it's working in, in your league for a team or, or wherever else, how can they really go above and beyond um, aside from just the uh, initiative approach uh, to ultimately get, get to that point? I once worked for a commissioner who had a pet saying that I deeply value. And that saying might sound like a cliche, but it works. And the thing he used to say often was, responsibility is 80% taken and 20% given. A universal tenant for all of us no matter where or what we do or what level we work at is an organization and an assignment can always improve. There is no such thing as a perfect organization. It doesn't exist. 
organizations are organic. And in order to maintain their leadership or to gain dominance, they have to improve. And even if someone is working in a mailroom, or even if somebody is loading laundry, or even if somebody is performing what, what is perceived as a menial chore, there's always a way to do it better. And in all of our lives, we've been in jobs where we, on one hand, could say, if only they would do this. Or, on the other hand, we say, you know, it could be so much better if I did it this way. Sometimes you don't need to ask permission to improve. You simply can go out and make a statement by improving and bringing that new tactic or that new operation to the forefront. Rarely is somebody criticized for initiative. Usually criticism comes for many other uh, <laughs> different tenants, but rarely are they um, criticized for trying to seize an opportunity and build upon it. No, you make a great point. Rick, Fred, to Rick, go... Your, uh, well, your quote, Rick, uh, brings back memories of uh, a very good friend and certainly a very accomplished person, Mr. Peter Uberall. Well, that's who it was. <laughs> and, and, and really, to kind of put a cap on this, when one thinks about Peter, and, and Rick and I have been fortunate to work with him, I consider him to be a very good friend. Peter's career, when you look at the accomplishments of Peter Uberall, uh, it goes back, and, and he and I have a common thread, not knowing one another, but both being at San Jose State at the same time. And I've heard Peter tell the story that the way that he got involved, he was not an exceptional high school student. Peter's the first to acknowledge that. Uh, but he was a water polo player and, and had a friend who was, or, or a former coach or a coach who knew of his ability. And that was really kind of his entry into San Jose State. But what really strikes me in all of this, if you look at Peter and his drive to accomplish and to be good at what he did, Peter entered the travel business and, and, and made a name for himself and, and built his reputation in a business far removed, in most parts, from the world of sports. But he accomplished himself enough to have the opportunity that in the Olympic Games in Los Angeles to become the president of the uh, chairman of the Olympic Games in Los Angeles and then was so successful due to his uh, ability to surround himself with outstanding people to be just so totally dedicated to the task and so well-prepared, that that was the path that led him to become the commissioner of baseball. And you think about that. You, you build experience. It doesn't make any difference what business that you're in. And more so than at any other time in the history of sport, I believe this, skills acquired are more transferable into sports than they have ever been at any other time. And, and that's a major breakthrough. And I think uh, uh, 
quite uh, unplanned. Uh, Rick mentioning the quote, mentioning to me, uh, and my mention of Peter, he exemplified uh, what can happen in a career path uh, that's based on total dedication, curiosity, and just a tremendous drive to succeed and to uh, be able to identify uh, people who could help him accomplish uh, the objectives and those objectives being accomplished as a team. Oh, you bring up a great point, Fred, and, and thanks for kind of recapping that and, and, and bringing that all full circle. But one of the things I actually wanted to start doing on each episode was, you know, our, our title is called Life in the Front Office, and we talk about all these skills and pieces of advice and insights. And I would I would go back to Rick and Fred and say, if there's one skill that you've learned in your time in the front office, and and I think the front office is used in a loose term that you know, you could be kind of in any office within sports and, and kind of everyone calls it the front office to some extent. If there's one skill that you guys have learned that you would be able to give advice on to someone young starting out or someone that's in the industry right now that, quite frankly, it might help them advance. What is the one thing that has helped you along your career uh, so much that you couldn't live without it? Go ahead, Rick. Gosh, you know, it gets rolled up for me in a couple of things, Jake, but it's a, it, uh, that's a tremendous question. Um, you know, I, I think there is a certain combination of drive, of learned acumen, and the ability to intuit opportunity. I'm not saying that people should ride by the seat of their pants all the time, but I'll share with you a story, and, and I think this this involves all three. As a young person, I used to travel with my father to Dodger Stadium, and I'd go watch the game. I was a tremendous Dodger fan, and, and um, I used to live and die with my heroes on those Dodger teams. And when I became older and I was working at Major League Baseball, I happened to recall something that I'd once seen in a game. It wasn't unusual. It happened all the time. But I just happened to recall it, given the assignment I had. And that was, I remember a left-handed reliever who was very effective for the Dodgers in those days and went on to a long coaching career by the name of Ron Paranowski, who entered the game as a relief pitcher. He was a reliever by trade. And I recall Ron Paranowski was wearing a Dodger blue satin jacket over his left arm, keeping it warm as he made the walk from the outfield bullpen to the mound and before he started taking his warm-up pitches. And I remember as a young person saying to myself, if I could have that jacket, I'd be the happiest kid in the world. Well, fast forward 20 years, and I have an opportunity without anybody requesting it but I have an opportunity to do something different with a company that ultimately I reset and founded as Major League Baseball Properties. And that was the opportunity to create products that no one up until that time had ever had the opportunity to purchase. And that was the genesis of what became Major League Baseball Authentics or Major League Baseball's Authentic Diamond Collection 
And if you look back 30 years and then fast forward to today, that recollection of Ron Paranowski has now permeated the sports business, whether it's football, basketball, hockey, soccer, baseball, of course, collegiate, high school, pro, and people now wear, quite freely, authentic products. It wasn't that anybody had presented us with research saying it would work. It wasn't because somebody had come to us and said, I have an idea. And it wasn't because in my day-to-day -day job, I was performing the task of soliciting, licensing, or generating authentic products. It's because I had observed what was happening in other leagues and the way they had formulated their business practices by centralizing all of their IP. It's because I had received feedback from people like Fred and Andy Dolich and Pat Gallagher and others saying, gee, why is it we can't create a better value for products and, and so we don't just have souvenir merchandise. But instead, it was the combination of a number of things where without anybody saying, you have permission to do this, or without anybody saying, I'd like you to do this, I had the opportunity to suggest to a jacket manufacturer, why don't you make that product? And I'm the most fortunate guy in the world because it transformed our efforts at Major League Baseball. But if you look at it now, um, you know, 20 years on, it transforms sport. And the things I'm proudest about in my career are those kind of legacy activities that no one did before we did them at Major League Baseball properties, whether it was retro product, whether it was pro bono licensing, whether it was fan festivals, whether it was uh, the all-star home run hitting contest, whether it was if-win merchandise, we invented that when we were at Major League Baseball properties. And we did so with a team that had all of those tenants and who were unafraid to take an initiative or take responsibility. And one other thing, they were also unafraid to fail because we had created a community of professionals who were happy to take chances, happy to affect change, and proud of their accomplishments. And, and that's the takeaway I carry, I hope at every stop along the way I've made in my career, but whether it's authentic products or a 501c4, you know, owning a professional baseball team. I think it's that combination of things that, that gets you there, at least in my experience. Well, and Rick, we might have to invite you back on for another episode to talk about all the, the new innovations that could be possible uh, from 2018 on. And, uh, you know, obviously the, the things that you named have already been done, but there's got to be more uh, in the future that we just don't know about. So we might have to ask you about a couple of those things. But Fred, uh, I want to kick it to you. Uh, for for your answer on this question, um, go for it. The uh, someone starting out as a 
young person starting position with an organization uh, might wonder, what what is it? I mean, I'm not in a position to make decisions. Uh, what you know? How how am I going to be able to to advance uh, to make a help make a difference? My advice in the long rich words: take ownership. And what I mean by that is from the day that I started with the Dodgers, or even before my career, when you're working for an organization, take ownership. And what I mean by that is, what can I do to make this organization better? This is my objective. Not my career, not my uh, anything. But what can I do to make a difference? How can I be creative enough? What, what, what is it that I can help to initiate or to suggest or to try to build? And, and, and that's basically the same thing that Rick is talking about, is that at all levels, we have in any department, if you look at that department and, and, and think to yourself, what is it that I can do in a constructive way and with working with the people around me to make this organization better, to, to take ownership of that. Because what's what's best for the Dodgers is best for me. And, and that very definitely was the philosophy at any position that I had with the Dodgers. I was always thinking about the Dodgers or whatever company you're working for, you one will be amazed at how rewarding that can be. Because in many ways, that becomes a very transparent thing. This person working for our company cares more about the company than anything else that he's doing. And I, I think that shows through. I think that's critically important. And when you are in a position to be able to uh, make a difference, uh, the rewards of that are tremendous. Well, I appreciate you sharing those uh, insights, Fred. And uh, Rick, we appreciate having you on as well today. Um, appreciate your time and thoroughness. Um, would love to, like I said, have you on again uh, in the near future. I'm sure Fred would as well. Um, we appreciate uh, the time and looking forward to our next episode uh, later next week with President of Golden State Warriors, Rick Welts. Uh, so we'll have back-to-back -back Ricks on. And uh, if you did like this episode, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, keep uh, in, in tune with uh, our launch of each episode every Monday. We're going to start launching them on Monday. So check back in, uh, see what the new ep new episode is. Um, and we also have a new Twitter. Follow us at Life Front Office. Uh, follow us. We'll send out updates and, and some other quotes along the way uh, as we go. So appreciate you listening in um, and have a good afternoon. <laughs>